Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And on the eve of our nation's midterm elections, we thought we would watch one of the better movies about American politics, Alexander Payne's 1999 film, Election. As our guest today, we have invited Jerusha Matson-Neal, preaching professor at Duke Divinity School, to join us. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask her what this movie has to do with life and ministry, theology, and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with election for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be November 11th, the 25th Sunday after Pentecost. And in our final segment, postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we jump into our conversation, I want to introduce our guest, Jerusha Matson-Neal. Jerusha is assistant professor of homiletics at Duke Divinity School and the author of the forthcoming book, The Overshadowed Preacher on the Work of the Holy Spirit in the Pulpit. Jerusha, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's talk about this movie, Alexander Payne, before he made Sideways or About Schmidt or Nebraska, takes one of the most quintessentially human institutions, which is a race for student council president. Matthew Broderick, a decade after immortalizing Ferris Bueller, comes back to high school as beloved history teacher Jim McAllister, who, despite seeming to have a big heart for his job, can't quite find room in it for ambitious, always-with-her-hand-up student Tracy Flick played by Reese Witherspoon in one of her defining roles. And so Mr. McAllister starts to mess around with her campaign to become student council president, first by recruiting her opponent, lovable jock Paul Metzler, played by vintage late 90s Chris Klein, and then it just kind of goes downhill from there. In some ways, this is a movie about people unspooling. In some ways, it's about people finding their true selves. In some ways, it seems to sit on top of such a well of cynicism that it's barely about anything. And of course, it all feels different and I suspect raw in the wake of the stakes of our current national election season. Jerusha, I'm curious, how did this movie feel for you revisiting it now? And is there a way for election to help us think about the church and the world? Um, I, I was surprised. Um how relevant it felt. I remember watching this movie when it came out. Um, it had sort of gone to the back reaches of my memory. Um, but watching it again, um, what struck me first was this very pointed um, interrogation of earnest democratic norms with kind of this, I don't care, nothing matters sort of populism. And I, I mean, the, the kinds of critiques of, of, of ethics, of ambition, of government generally that we're hearing right now in our news cycles, the whataboutism, um, the sense that um, you know rules are meant to be broken, things can get fudged, you know, power power wins the day. I mean, these kinds, the sense that that 
there's all of this happening behind the scenes, um, you kind of have a microcosm of these kind of arguments in in the movie here. And and I have to say the second thing that hit me after that first thing was the relevance of the movie around all of the Me Too stuff that's happening. Because um, yeah. one of the pieces I had forgotten, I remembered all this stuff about Tracy Flick as ambitious, you know, overly ambitious uh, student government president wannabe. Um, I had completely repressed the fact that she had been seduced and abused by her teacher the year prior to this event. And um, I think that piece of it and how, why that's in the movie, um, how that plays out in McAllister's own perceptions of her, um, I think that's, that certainly was underexplored in my first viewing and it, and it was bright this time around. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't, it could not be considering the world that we live in right now in part because Tracy's defining characteristic, as you said, is her, her ambition and, and her drive to do something that she sees as great or worthwhile. And yet you cannot help now to see how that is driven by adult approval and how that adult that need for adult approval was the 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 thing that a a person in power preyed upon and yeah. how um and how Tracy in the movie is simultaneously this this whirlwind or this like strong character and yet there is still this deep tenderness pain something going on behind that facade that is really um, that that the movie continues to allude to in small ways, whether it's the conversation that she has with her mother, whether it's the ways in which she flies into rages um, because things aren't going as she expected. And I, I mean, I remember finding her um, mostly annoying upon the first watch, and I felt much more tenderness for her on on at this point in my life and at this point in our cultures. Um, in our culture's time, I I don't know. I mean, were there other characters? How did you how did you relate to uh, Mr. McAllister, the Matthew Broderick character, over the course of the movie? Because I think he's he's intended at the beginning to be someone who you're who seems trustworthy, but slowly that degrades. Absolutely, I, I think the thing about the switching of roles. Um, is really built in, kind of key to what makes the movie work. You even see it in the casting with the Ferris Bueller reference. There's even explicit Ferris Bueller reference. And and but I think in terms of content, the movie is also about that, about bringing his um, his perspective uh, into doubt, um, so that at the end you have him literally with an eye swollen <laughs> shut. Um, as this visual reminder that what he has told us, even though it sounded very believable at the beginning, is really um, complicated and and contested by his own lack of vision. Um, what has he not seen? Um, and and it's not that there are simple heroes heroes or victims. I think that's a really smart thing about the movie. But but you also have this sort of switching back and forth of. Uh, of Tracy as the one with all the power and all the control and, and Tracy as um, the one that is really dependent and weak and, and um, perhaps addicted to um, prescription meds by her mom. And I mean, you know, there's, there's all of this nuance in terms of how these characters are, are being portrayed. Yeah. Um, at some point she's a high school student. That's right. right. I mean, and yeah. um, for 
all of the attempts that she makes to sound and act adult, realizing, yes, she's still 17 or 18 years old. That jumping around in the hallway is what gets me more than more than the rage that when she rips all of them. I saw the rage coming. It was the bouncing around like a rabbit in the hall that kind of made my heart break for her because you just see how much is at stake. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, And that that bit at the very end when her mom comes into the room is like, well, maybe if we had just made more banners. And then that just kind of like twists the knife. Right. (laughs) Kills me. Yes, 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 yes. Uh. Yeah, this this movie does that really well with the the subtle details that that you hear and they're savage, right? They're just they're just these moments where where after Mr. McAllister is kicked out of his house because of his own infidelity with his wife, he goes back to the hotel that he had prepared for his his uh, you know salacious tryst, and the guy at the front desk asks him if he wants the same room. It is. It is like, and you get this sense like, oh, he couldn't, he can't see, you know, and quite literally at that point cannot see his, his eye is swollen shut and, um, and everything is coming home to roost. Everything is just piling back on because these people, their, their ability to self-reflect is, um, uh, is almost, uh, uh, totally gone. It's missing. And and you get that from the very beginning when the the teacher who who had the tryst with Tracy F- or who abused Tracy Flick is sitting crying saying but but we're in love right that's right and you see how deluded this human being is and how pathetic the whole enterprise is and by the end of the movie you get the same I think unspooling as you said earlier matt with with the mr McAllister character matt was what was your impression as you watched this again i think for me the difference in 20 years and coming back to this movie is that kind of the the um the instability of perspective within it was really striking to me uh the the back and forth between their points of view the back and forth between their voiceover I I I had only seen this movie once uh, when when it first came out. I haven't gone back to it until now, and so it it what I remembered and I, a little bit of what you said, Jerusha. What I remembered as a a movie about in some ways, what you remember is the Tracy Flick character. I think partially because that character kind of becomes Reese Witherspoon in a way. I mean, it is the character that she in some ways inhabits in the Legally Blonde franchise and the years that follow. There's a lot of strong parallels there. Um, but well, in addition to that, too, Matt, like that, I think Hillary Clinton is called Tracy Flick over and over and over again for the like the last ten years, too, right? So that 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 character lives on in an actual human being who the the culture understood is overly ambitious. Yeah, uh, and 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 so there's that that's what that's the thing that has carried with me from then. It was it was really interesting to go back and see the complexity of it, to see her mother's role, to see Mr. McAllister's role, to see Mr. McAllister try to differentiate himself from his friend Dave, who is, you know, her, who is Tracy's lover at the beginning of the film, and for him to say, well, Dave is just one of those guys who never really wanted to leave high school, and so he sticks around, but he's not in it for the teaching, not like I am. Um, which is the, which was a very kind of powerful moment for me of oh you're trying to draw a line between things that actually don't get to have a line between them 
Um, so yeah, it was it was more nuanced in this watching, and I appreciated it for that. One of the things that kind of struck me, and and I, it's because I come back now twenty years later with so much more of a theological lens, is is the way in which this felt not just about election in the political sense of it, but election in the broad theological sense of it. Uh, um, Tracy in voiceover at the beginning and this kind of great film noir kind of voiceover bit says that none of this would have happened if Mr. McAllister hadn't meddled the way he did. He, sh- he should have just accepted things as they are instead of trying to interfere with destiny. You see, you can't interfere with destiny. That's why it's destiny. And if you try to interfere, the th- same thing's just going to happen anyway, and you'll just suffer. And I, I find that to be a fascinating entry point here. Like, this is a movie about people who make terrible, terrible choices. But my question underneath it is, like, how many of their choices matter? And how many of their choices affect the outcome? And which seems like a theological question behind a doctrine of election in the first place. I mean, ultimately, the choice that tips the day is McAllister's decision to drop the Chinese food container on the floor and, you know, anger the the custodian. Um, And I think this, but the issue you're bringing up, Matt, for me, really gets at this larger critique of democracy and choice, which is, if our vision is really impaired, to what extent can we make the kinds of choices that democracy requires? And and then further, um, at the end of the day, is there a kind of fatalism that holds our ends? And I, I think that that it's a it's a theological question, but I think it's also being applied very explicitly in the political realm. Does this work? I mean, there's a kind of cheery democratic belief in individual choice and our ability to uh, be free actors, you know, acting rationally, all of these kinds of things for the common good. Um, and this movie complicates all of that. I think perhaps through the character of McAllister the most, because he would, he really thinks he's doing the right thing. It's good for everybody. It's good for the school. Ultimately, it's going to be good for Tracy. I mean, like he thinks this is all, and he, and he completely, um, he loses everything. Yeah. Well, and, and, and he, he justifies inviting Paul into the, uh, into the election, uh, because that's that would make it more democratic, right? Yeah. So he he has invited someone in because for for democracy, without being able to reflect on the fact that he has um, see deep <laughs> ambivalence to the presence of Tracy Flick and personally just doesn't want to work with her. Which to add to the complicated vision of democracy, I think this movie is trying to ask: to what extent do we have access to an honest human being in? Um, who is assuming some position of power. Because for most of the people in this movie, their own identity is invisible to themselves. They can't actually even understand who they are in the midst of this world, let alone try and um, give you an honest reflection of who that is. So that where Mr. McAllister is saying that I am a teacher, as Matt noted earlier, I'm a teacher and I won teaching awards and I live to teach. He's a, he's a, by the end of this is a terrible teacher, right? He's, he has fully uh, subverted and undermined his ability to be a teacher by caring only about his own personal needs. And that is the sort of antithesis of what it means to teach, which, which is, 
at no point he doesn't want to call on Tracy Flick. He can't actually see the pain and the and the need for approval that is behind her and sympathize with it or empathize with it. All he sees is be, is being annoyed. And um, and you would expect that someone who like cares about teaching would be a bit more mature than he actually is. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and and he, the the stories he tells himself are, are ridiculous. There's that. I mean, Alexander Payne is not the most like it, like the the best visual stylist as a director. I think his movies are brilliant. But there are a couple moments in this movie where he does like just amazing things. Where the voiceover of Mr. McAllister is him talking about how he he selflessly helps out uh, his, his the the wife of the of his friend after they had been divorced. And as he's talking about how selfless he is, it shows his sort of lascivious gaze down her own blouse, right? And and inserts into this that he is he is a he has his own selfish desires that at the, that are at the heart of him and that sex and libido are also like wrapped up in how he understands the world so that you know he's watching a sort of a pornographic movie and that gives him the idea to invite Paul to undermine Tracy's uh, Tracy's election and so over and over again, he can't see himself, even though the story that he tells about himself, he believes. Well, he and he invites her because he finds himself drinking a Pepsi. He invites Paul because he finds himself drinking a Pepsi and remembers her thing about how Coke uh, is the most popular drink in the world and still spends a ton on advertising. So there's actually this weird like the Coke Pepsi debate ends up being the instigator for him thinking about choice and the student council election. And I, I'm super curious about whether Coke or Pepsi paid any money for this movie. Cause it's, and then at various points he finds himself drinking, drinking them in the movie, which seems like a weird signifier of where his body and where, where his brain is. Um, but there's a, there's a Coke Pepsi line that runs through this whole thing. Yeah. It's very strange. And, and, yeah. and you wouldn't know if you were Coke or Pepsi, like, who who gets the better end of that deal? Right. Like, I mean, I have you, no idea. Yeah. Funny, you know what I mean? Like, who are you being? You're not really being identified with any great character. No, series. no, to be sure. Um, I, I mean, I just want to be clear about something since since we're talking about this right around the midterms. Um, I am definitely going to vote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe in political agency. Um, I remember very clearly a conversation that I had um, with a friend um, after the last election, and she was she was very disheartened by the results, and she had prayed about it, and she was angry at God, and the the, the word that she had heard was that you you know you get the leaders you deserve. Mm. Oh my goodness! And she, um, I'm, I'm not saying yes or no on whether that was word of God or not. But what it brings up is this larger question of even as we participate in this democratic system because we have to, there is this larger, um, I, I'd say, wound in the culture, right, that can't just be voted away. There is something that these years have revealed about the kind of nation we are, the deep struggles, the deep divisions, the deep divides. And I'm not sure we can just choose our way into a different reality. There is there is something that feels bigger than individual choice at work in the mix. And, and maybe this movie sort of, it, it's playing between that choice and fatalism thing, even though, of course, God's not in the picture in the movie, gave me the sense that, you know, democracy only gets us so far, given the fact that we don't finally have the perception 
to really be able to see people or ourselves as we truly are. Which is why we might need election as a doctrine. Right. Hmm. You know, because because we 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 can't we are so limited. We cannot see. And so the the individual and choices that we make that we um that we we can we can barely assess the long-term consequences of even the most rudimentary decisions. And so and democracy assumes a level of foresight that that we have some access to how our decisions will play out into the future. And what this movie, I think, is trying to ask is like, well, do we? In fact, the only person who is actually truly strategic and gets to what they want at the end is Tammy, who yep. is able to recognize that if she can get kicked out of school, she might find a world that will um, that will suit her needs better. Yeah. And she sets about getting kicked out of school, gets kicked out of school, and then is sent to the private school that she wants to go to. And by the end, she is happy. And um, and I like, she's, she's such an interesting character in this movie because she's able to do that strategic work as opposed to Paul, who is trying to, um, who's just going about life, just sort of like happily winning for no good reason, other than he's like white, male privileged and attractive um and but at the end of the movie i'm not sure that like has tracy flick won is do you feel like like she has gotten what she wanted is tammy the only person in the movie who the only main character in the film who who cares about somebody else well now let me just say i, I mean the movie is also clear with tammy that, that she has this kind of idealization, I mean, in the way high schoolers do, but there's clear codependency idealization of, yes. of her lady loves. Um, and, and that's true at the end too, um, because you see the same swing set, you see the right. same pattern. And, and so you're not sure is right. this gonna be a repeat of her broken heart or is this, I mean, you want, you want it not to be, but the movie leaves you unsure simply by repeating the narrative again. Um, we're perfect for each other. She's wonderful. Yeah. I, nobody gets off scot-free in this movie. <laughs> nobody. Right. No one fully understands themselves, except maybe the uh, the guy who counts the the votes. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me let me extol my favorite character because he is yeah. my, the guy who counts the votes. I don't remember his name, and I couldn't couldn't figure out how to look it up. But uh, I I want to say something about this guy because I feel like there's a a, a little sub theme in this movie, which is about. Um, the role of just having an office and this this high schooler has been given the office of being chair of the election commission or whatever it's called and man all he wants to do in life is to do his damn job and and he does his damn job he counts the votes and he's like look i counted the votes right i don't know what you want and it doesn't matter in that room because he doesn't have even though he he should have power he doesn't the the administration and the teachers don't see him as a fully vested authority even though he holds the office that he's been given and i feel like this happens in the church all the time that we we put people in offices but don't actually want them to do their jobs so we we call elders and committee chairs and deacons and even pastors and we we say okay you are in charge of church finances or you are in charge of the mission committee or you are in charge of the the whatever ministry but 
there is still there's so often this like huge gulf between the folks who hold an office and the folks who actually retain power. I feel like I've seen the look that guy has on the committee chairperson's faces all the time. It's the look of like, look, if you if you didn't want me to do this job, then why did it exist and why did you give it to me? So that I feel like he is he is my like uh, kind of. There's a, there's a certain kind of honest core at the center of the movie when I, for me, which is him. And so I, I appreciate that, that moment. Matt, that's so well said because I think it's at that moment. I mean, that really, that character and the choices he makes and this emphasis on rules and rule following and, and the, the numbers have to match up, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, it's right there that the, the movie chooses not to go into nihilism. Like it says, and it still keeps this earnest hope that that facts are real, that there are numbers, and that we can abide by rules because it's the right thing to do and have a fair sort of accounting. And um, I mean, it, it is. It, it, there is a moral center to the movie. There is a sense in which um, an accounting comes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, he's, I, he's maybe the only principled uh, person in the movie. Uh, yeah, and 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 well, right. In in this very ordinary way, he he and the custodian both right between the two of them, um, what is hidden becomes uncovered. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on, I want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. If you are listening to the show and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org/podcastoffer. Also, I wrote a book, and it's now available on the interwebs. It's called "The Holy No: Worship as a Subversive Act." Actually, Jerusha was kind enough to write a blurb for it and i appreciate that it is out right now go over to amazon to your local bookstore and buy the book i'd appreciate it i worked really hard on it i'm actually pretty proud of it it's pretty good all right let's move on to preaching this segment is called preaching to the choir we're looking at the lectionary passages for this coming sunday november 11th the 25th sunday after pentecost we have the end of the book of ruth we have the story of the widow of zarephath we have the widow's might and mark's gospel and some extolling on sacrifice in the book of Hebrews. Jerusha, as you looked at these verses, what connected for you? What was inspirational for you as you thought about election? I, I found it so interesting um, how at particular moments um, in our political life together as a, as a nation over these last years, um, perhaps this always happens and I just didn't have eyes for it before, uh, the lectionary passages seem very much to speak to the political questions that we're grappling with. So here we here we are. Uh, we have a story of a female refugee. We have a story of a prophet who intercedes for a foreigner so that she's not separated from her son. Um, we have a, a woman abused by a corrupt economy. Um, all of that's right there. Uh, the, the, the thing that struck me having watched Election, the movie, um, was it did strike me the way that particularly the two widows are women performing in a man's story that, you know, either Elijah or the disciples in Jesus, they're observed, they're judged, they're seen through the lens of men. And, and interestingly, of course, Jesus brings note to both. He, he singles out the, the widow, but the widow of Zarephath comes up in his first sermon. So there's, there is this, there's a tension that he gives and a specificity, I think, to them. Um, and, and the issue with Ruth, I mean, boy, after watching the movie, um, 
you know, that, that end of Ruth scene, the threshing floor and Boaz and all the rest. I mean, for all of the promise, I think that the text wants us to feel around those verses after watching election, I, I just couldn't help but feel the, the tricky ways in which um, sexuality and abuse and vulnerability and ambition are all intersecting in that text. Um, and, and, and not necessarily unhealthy ambition, just a trying to make it. And what do you have to do to make it um, in this new place? I mean, it's, it's really complex and difficult. And um, the movie sort of complicated that, that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, survival is a, is a question that sort of exists at the heart of democracy, but um, but also in the life of this this particular movie, which is like it, like these people are in such deep need, and what are the lengths you you are going to go in a, in order to get that need? And and one of the needs that I think overlaps is this need to be needed, right? Um, there was a a quote that. Um, from from this priest that that I'll say sometimes to myself, which is that like one of the funda fundamental parts of human experience is that we desire to be desired by the one we desire, and and I I kept hearing that both in in the stories and the story of Ruth in particular, but also in election because there's just so much need to be needed. And and so little real intimacy in the movie. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah, and that's the question as as you think about the lives of these these characters in scripture is like to what extent is that intimacy real and met and satisfied? Matt, how about you? Last week I was reading an article in uh the New Republic by a guy named Garrett Kaiser. Uh it's called The Empty Core of the Trump Mystique that I, I will commend to you all. And he he talks about the the and so your word from earlier, Jerushi, he talks about the nihilism at the heart of the moment that we're in uh, and, and the degree to which it's, it's hard to have effective political dialogue in a, in a moment where so many seem to not, not believe in, in any of the values that would make that possible or any of the values that would have a substantial outcome. And this quote has been bouncing through my head, especially as I was watching this movie and, and, and resonating with this kind of dark core. And Kaiser writes that against nihilism, only love can prevail. That is because love must always affirm a value, both the value of the loved one and the value of the love itself. It cannot do otherwise. But here's the catch. A love capable of confronting nihilism must be nothing less than the militant self-sacrificial force that it was for Martin Luther King Jr. who quotes him, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. So in light of that statement, one could say that Trump-era America has become a nation of people whose fitness to live is at, is at serious risk. Were it not, they would view the question, are you prepared to die for your country, as a tactical consideration instead of a plebeian breach of good taste. And I've been thinking about that quote a lot, first in the context of, of kind of getting ready to preach on the widow's might, because I think there's something interesting about the language of she gives all that she has um, as, as, yeah, it's a matter of performance, but it's also a matter of, of, of believing in something, of kind of positively affirming and, and, and positively valuing the, the cause to which she gives herself, that there is something there. It's not just nothing. And, and I wonder how that plays with 
the the nihilism that may or may not be at the heart of this movie um where is the ascription of value where is the love in this film is it there it may not be uh is the, is there someone in this movie who loves something outside of themselves truly is there someone who is giving themselves for a cause for for some broader cause I mean, certainly we see in Tracy's dedication, I mean, her insistence, her persistence, her desire to make all the cupcakes and all the banners and all the flyers, there's dedication there. But I wonder, but the, the, the question, I guess, is, is kind of what is it, is it in service of something broader? And, or is it just a plebeian breach of good taste? I think that's, that's where I'm wondering today. Yeah, and that raises within me the question that has been raised in my imagination throughout this whole political uh, season, which is to what extent can we trust the people who are talking as good faith actors? To what extent are do they actually believe the thing that they're saying? And it's is impossible to to fully answer. And within the within the movie, it's hard to figure out whether or not they believe what they're saying either, or whether or not it is just a political rhetoric to get the thing that they're interested in. And and this was central to how I started reading the, the widow's might passage, which is who, who can you believe in this text? Because there are the people who are, um, who talk a good game, who give and give and talk about their giving and make everyone know that they're giving. And then there's the widow's might, but she is also kind of interested in seeing people watch her giving, even though her giving is coming at a sort of sacrificial level that others cannot actually match. And to what extent is that performance that she's putting on a strategic action designed to get the thing that she wants, which might be some sort of like, at the end of the day, the exposure of a corrupt system or the the, the subversion of a group of people who say that they care about her, but in actuality don't. And I, I want to be able to honor the widow in her um, in her giving, in her protest, in her work, while also recognizing and continuing to ask myself about how our social performances um, are designed to raise capital to get the ends of our own interest. And my colleague Chuck and I were just talking about this widow's might passage um, recently, and and he did a sermon which took her gift in a really different direction. Um, he imagined that giving of the last two pennies as fed up and furious with it all, kind of a, a sort of you've taken everything else, take the last pennies too, you know, my blood's on your hands, right? Yes, self-immolation at that point. Just this sense of, you know, what a, the, the, the game's rigged. Um, and given the fact that this, you know, there's the whole uh, critique of Jesus of the temple, well, or, or description of the destruction of the temple in the, the chapter following, the no stone left upon another language. Um, it isn't such a crazy reading because finally Jesus sees the woman, describes the woman, but he kind of keeps his own counsel about what she's doing. She has given all she has. She has given more than others. Um, you can read him as saying that's precisely the wrong kind of system we should be living in, that she should be giving more than the others. Um, it, it almost implicates the system. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I mean, it's a very, um, I, I, but Matt, I, I don't want to lose your question because your question is about where's the love, right? Where's the love in the movie, in the text? Right. 
is it keeps us from this constant sort of positioning around characters and seeing through different lenses. Um, I, and I'll just offer this up. I don't. I don't think that the movie itself portrays, aside from your favorite character of the campaign election, right? Uh, who, who who just who just who just loves counting votes? I mean that that's that, that's his vote, right? Um, aside from that, the movie doesn't offer these characters as as heroes or models or you know having transformational moments where they you know are redeemed. Um, but I feel great compassion when I watch this movie. Yeah. And so there's something in the director's telling in bringing this detail and description to light of their brokenness, of their blindness, um, and yet their deep desire and longing. I I don't feel disdain or annoyance for these people. I feel sadness and, and I feel a, a kind of... Um, wishing the world were different for them, which is akin to love. It's it's getting there <laughs> more than perhaps right. the first time I watched the film. Maybe, maybe that's the secret of the film is that it loves its characters, even though its characters don't seem to love. I mean, then that's, that would be, that's a really beautiful uh, way of approaching it, I think. And maybe if it didn't, it couldn't possibly be as effective as it is. Well, yeah, he seems to revel in their humanity. In, in all of the self-delusion that humanity requires of us. Well, I think that's a really nice place to end on. Uh, Jerusha, thank you so much for coming and chatting about this movie with us and uh, appreciate your time and hope that we'll have you back someday. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you both. Thank you. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Uh, I have a random postlude about video games. Um, <laughs> so a video game called Red Dead Redemption 2 came out last weekend. Uh, in its opening three days, it made $725 million in sales. Oh it, my gosh. <laughs> this, this makes Red Dead Redemption 2 the highest opening entertainment product in recorded history. The second highest being uh, Grand Theft Auto V, which was made by the same studio and released five years ago. And just by com by word of comparison, in its opening weekend, Avengers Infinity War made $640 million worldwide. Now, granted, a $60 video game reaches a lot fewer eyeballs at $725 million than a $15 movie ticket does at $640. Nonetheless, I, there's something here where there's so much cultural power happening in these games and they're they're nowhere in the lexicon of the church that I know, uh, yes. and and so I, I that is my little kind of soapbox for the day. I, and I, I understand a lot of why this happens. I mean, video games have earned a certain kind of déclassé reputation, and some of that is fair, and some of it's not. I've played a couple of hours of Red Dead Two, and it will take me at my current rate of progress approximately the rest of time to finish it, which is fine. Uh, but I actually played the first one at your house. Like, oh, nice. When. Yeah, it was fun. That game's fun. But there's something, you know, I can get up in the pulpit any given Sunday and make an Iron Man joke uh, or make a Captain America reference and everyone is totally there. But I can't make a Grand Theft Auto reference. And there's something interesting about the discrepancy of kind of class and the discrepancy of taste that makes one of those pools of cultural power safe for the church and one of them not. 
Uh, and at some point, the sheer amount of money that these things are making is going to force us into saying, hey, there's some relevance here. There's some language here that we're not equipped to speak, and we should probably figure out how. So so in the video game genre, what what vocabulary could you say and be understood? Could you say like Mario? Oh, sure. Yeah, Mario there's could, could play. What else could play in a church? Uh, Tetris, Mario Tetris. Um, some like probably a number of like kind of uh, like dumb iPhone games. Like I could probably do, you know, certainly like your solitaires and things like that. Can- ma- 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 maybe a Candy Crush joke, maybe an Angry Birds joke, um, that kind of level of stuff. No um, Fortnite jokes. Probably not a Fortnite joke. I think a, a Zelda joke is kind of right on the right on the cusp. Yeah, that's probably right there. Um, right. I have I I I did a sermon once at a at a kind of like alternative young adult service where I did an extended uh, illustration using uh, using a first person shooter. Um, I think it was using one of the resistance games, um, and that was it was an interesting. Exp- I mean, it was kind of an intentional experiment. And it was an interesting experiment, and like you do with a movie, no one's seen. You have to spend a lot of time explaining it to get to the punchline, and that may or may not be good homiletical practice in the moment. Uh, but there's definitely not. There's not a level of canon that you can just kind of drop in. Like I could just make an ET reference or a Ghostbusters reference, and I wouldn't have to stop and explain anything. Right, and I and I mean, I, a lot of that is the function of the increasing median age of the mainline church right sure which yep. is is going in the opposite direction uh as the sort of the median age of those who play video games on the weekend that they come out and, and yet at the same time like a bunch of the cultural critics and political commentators that i follow on twitter like friday night at five o'clock were like hey everybody gonna go play red dead for the weekend now like and so it, it it is happening in broader spheres than um, I think we we give it credit for, and so that's th- hence the citation of the money, just to kind of remind us that there's huge entertainment product out there that we haven't quite figured out how to how to talk right. about. So, so could you? Um, this is so fascinating to me. I think it's such an interesting topic. Could you put in an illustration where you talk about how you lost a weekend to just playing a video game? Do you think people would understand that? Because most of my friends, I think, would. Um, maybe. I, I think I would probably have to talk about the time I did that a decade ago. I think if I said I lost last weekend playing a video game, that I, I would feel um, over-examined and shamed by that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think I could say, hey, that time back in the mid-2000s where I just fell into Zelda Wind Waker and didn't get out for a week, like yeah. that I would feel comfortable with. Yeah, interesting. It's so so interesting how taste wraps itself up in so much of how yeah. we use illustrations. Yeah. So, all right, here's my here's my postlude. Yeah. So I'm reading this book called The City of Brass by S. A. Chakraborty, uh, and it's really really good, and I really commend it to everyone. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, it is a fantasy tale, uh, but it is set in a Middle Eastern cosmology. And it is basically about jinns, about genies, about these sort of uh, lesser spirit gods within a Middle Eastern worldview. And it is uh, 
a lovely, lovely book. It's the plot is really interesting, but it's got all sorts of political intrigue. It's uh, it's got a little bit of Game of Thrones in it, and with the way that it sort of sets up sort of court politics and stuff like that among genies. Uh, what I really like about it is that the uh, the author is slowly parceling out these rich and satisfying details. So it it already understands what the Western understanding of the Middle Eastern world is, and then will constantly subvert that and then confirm it in different ways that is like wonderfully, wonderfully inventive. And I, as a preacher, I'm always thinking about how do I surprise a congregation by knowing something about it while also sort of turning that to in a different direction that's unexpected. And uh, Chakraborty does this incredibly well in this book, and I would commit it to you if you wanted to read something, or if you're just looking for a good fantasy read that would uh, that would take up your time before you go to bed. It's really wonderful stuff. It's expertly told, full of real pathos. Good book. Cool, sounds amazing. Thanks so much. That about wraps it up for this episode, Adam. If y'all like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come back to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band Omaha. Omaha, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>